0: Hey guys, welcome to this week's Money and Investing show, where we are going to look at how effective and accurate uh, outlook and guidance was at the start of this year. We provided what's called a dogleg forecast, a Goldilocks scenario, and unfortunately, the three bears have come home to roost. You'll see exactly as we break apart the calls that we made at the back end of 2021 and how they're panning out in the current market. Take plenty of notes and as always, take plenty of action hey guys welcome to this week's money and investing show with me your host andrew baxter and as always my off and co-host mitchell orangeell thank you mr baxter for having me on the show what i'm going to do today is put you under the
1: pump we're going to go through a bit of a review here we are new financial year we're in july now so i think it's important for us to sit down and review some of the old content that we brought to our listeners earlier on or sorry later on last year Mm. just to see what our forecasts were and
0: how we actually went in talking about them yeah, it's always good to do a review uh, for a number of reasons. You should do this on individual trades, on individual investment decisions or whatever your processes are, um, because you know success leaves clues and so too the deficiencies and doing that post-mortem yeah, you want to do more of what was right and less of what was wrong so if we go back to uh, economic outlook for 2022 which we actually published uh, in mid-december yeah um, very specifically going through that we did what we called a dog leg forecast we had I two, remember that. Mm, two specific scenarios it was the Goldilocks scenario if everything moves along in the right way and we get an economic soft landing and, and life is good and then the other side of the equation if we've got Goldilocks well let's talk about the three bears and that would be the uh, gloomier I suppose Suppose less golden scenario, uh, which has proven to be almost on point with what we were expecting.
1: So, just to run us through AB in a little more detail, Mm. we had the Goldilocks scenario where everything was okay. Yeah, what was our forecast? In the in the opposing argument,
0: so two or three of the major discussion points that we had was one a rise in geopolitical tensions and and the specific example we used was China and Taiwan, and whilst it wasn't well, I suppose it, it still is to a lesser degree, but uh, whilst it wasn't specifically China and Taiwan, it was obviously Russia and the Ukraine caused the global geopolitical shift that we've seen, uh, which has created a level of uncertainty in markets. It certainly disrupted you know supply chains, particularly in the construction space and foods, uh, and and. Uh, and also in the energy sector, too. So that was a really, really material uh, pointer that we talked to as to this changes the game if it happens. It certainly did happen uh, in the first two months of the year and is still ongoing now. So far from transitory, it's a real problem. Um, The the second area uh, was the notion of inflation gaining a toehold and continuing to grow. And we started to see early signs of that in the back end of last year, um, you know, a little bit in the food space uh, and to an extent in the energy space. The war in the Ukraine uh, immediately sent um, energy prices you know, ratcheting up uh, significantly higher. They were moving up prior to that, but that was a real catalyst given how important Russia is in terms of supplying Europe with energy.
1: Okay, so rising energy prices, higher inflation, and geopolitical conflict. With all of that in mind, which in this case we we got it right, and we'd still be doing this podcast even if we didn't. Hmm. What was, in your opinion, the single biggest factor which determined that outcome?
0: If you had to put it down to one thing, the one thing I will put it down to is interest rates, and the and the I guess the tardiness on the part of the central bank, definitely here in Australia, but also in the US with the with the Fed, um, and. You can kind of understand, to an extent, as a central banker, it's probably not the easiest job in the world. You're making a decision today, which has a lagging and very, very long-lasting impact, based on information that's a couple of months old. So it's it's sort of using the rearview mirror to make decisions real time that you can't even see the impact of for a separate account. So It's not the easiest job, uh, which is why. Those roles should go to people that have a very, very good touch with markets, and I think are also exceptionally good at communicating that view on markets too. And that deficiency, that ability to communicate to markets what their view is, I think, is something that the Reserve Bank and particularly Philip Lowe um, have very, very low skill sets in. Um, the U.S. has been slightly different; they've very well telegraphed what they were doing. But you know, in both cases, interest rates were moved higher and that caught people off guard and I don't know why because you know we were saying you know for a solid you know six months at least yeah, before that yeah what initial we, we, podcast saying that rates are coming on we got torched on social media for it and again this isn't a lap of honor to say how good away we. we got it right Blind Freddy if they're an economist or if they are someone that goes to a supermarket or petrol station or lives life um out in the real world would tell you that there was an inflationary problem. So you didn't need the economic data, you could see it anecdotally. Um, so. From, from the part of the central banks, I think the, the, the idea is to try and hold off until you have to make that move. And I guess some of the things that you'd want to see, um, you know, we had the, the obviously the war in the Ukraine and, and, and an immediate knee-jerk reaction with energy prices in particular. And the hope was, oh, that's just transitory, it's a short-term blip in the market, and then subsequently fell away, except it didn't fall away. And so I think they were holding off on raising rates, and I can't speak for them, but I think in both cases they were holding off on on raising rates to try and give the benefit of the doubt to the economy that it was transitory so you can understand the the decision-making framework to that regard
1: i guess the challenge is though Ab. you know if i look in the case of philip lowe i think it was only november december last year he was in his rba statement saying it's transitory, it'll go away. We come to a point now, we fast forward six months later, and there's an inflation expectation at 7%, his words, not ours.
0: Yeah, I mean, it comes down to what your definition of transitory is. If you're looking at like a 20-year view, it probably 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 is, but yeah, yeah, he got it wrong. Uh, And the difficulty I think he's had is accepting that he got it wrong. You know, even to the point where after he made that speech, that rates would be on hold until 2024, he tried to almost backpedal and say that's not how the comment was made. And that does come down to communication and, and and in all fairness to to the US Fed, Jerome Powell's done a very good job of it. And probably, even though he probably wasn't one of the better central bankers um, from a policy perspective, from a communications perspective, was probably Ben Bernanke, who was exceptionally good at keeping the market fully appraised of this is what we're likely to be doing. And these are the reasons why. So that as we keep saying, you know, literally week to week, markets hate shocks. They hate surprises. And so if you've got that ability to, to convey what you're going to do in good time, and there's no ambiguous wording around it, markets can handle that kind of news versus an unexpected knee-jerk reaction which then creates volatility and then uncertainty and then can have a real serious knock-on in your economy. So you know I think if anything, um, the, both central banks were late getting to the party uh, by a number of months, possibly because they wanted to give you know the economy the benefit of the doubt and and because they were late getting to the party the the initial opening hands have been quite strong in terms of you know higher than expected, rate rises. Uh, And I think the notion of uh, hitting the market very, very hard with a series of far stronger than expected rate rises. And then tapering that off as inflation gets under control is actually quite a prudent strategy under the circumstance because inflation has run away. You know, it's well outside of any kind of bands that the US or the Australia that use. And so you need to use a stronger tool to try and rein it back in. And we're not done with that. I mean, we said you know we expected inflation to to, to grow as a problem, uh, and that's exactly what we have. And I think we're going to see, you know, a couple more fairly significant interest rates. Uh, rises both domestically and in the US before we start to then see that taper. The impact of that, of course, is massively dented consumer confidence and is a precursor, I think, to seeing us in what I'd probably modify our outlook as being is is a drift into recession. That's hard to hear. Mm. And
1: I know there's going to be a lot of listeners out there, which are probably asking and begging the question as to Where to from here? If we had to look at that in a little bit more detail from a markets perspective, what do you see moving forward for the next six or so months?
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be fairly painful in all fairness. And I I hate the notion, Mitch, of scaremonger marketing uh, and saying, oh, you need to do this and go and buy some tuna and some gold and bunker down and hope it all rides out. That's not what we're talking about here. You've got to have your eyes open and realise where we are. And we've had a long period of time where money has effectively been free to borrow, to all intents and purposes. So we've had runaway asset prices in the stock market, in the property market, Um, and, and as a consequence of that, if you take, for example, in the US, if you look at the tech sector, Um, You know, those growth stocks have been on unbelievably high valuations uh, and they've been, let's call them the disruptors, you know, your Netflix, for example, uh, that is is disrupted in technology. Uh, Square or Block would be another example. Uh, It's disrupted the game as it is uh, and the share price has just gone ballistic on the back of it. Now, the earnings may not really be there to back up that valuation, but when money's free to Borrow. You just simply borrow more. You run your business in the hope that at some point in the future that um, disrupting technology becomes the norm and that's when you get paid. All of a sudden, if you have inflation, the future earnings of the business are very heavily discounted, which is what we're now seeing. Secondly, the cost of capital is significantly higher. And all of a sudden you get a shift, which we've really started to see, where all of those disruption growth type businesses have really started to feel under an awful lot of pressure and, and value companies which have been discarded as dogs with fleas for the last probably seven or eight years are now again looking like the place that you want to invest where there's real earnings, real growth, um, you know, cash flow positive. Dividends. Dividends, uh, exactly, and, and, and that sort of quality box is, is, is effectively ticked. Um, and, and, and so that transition in markets, I think, is is going to be something that we continue to see over the next few months. You know, we've got an earnings season coming up um, not too far after when this podcast will be published. And, and I'm not going to go out on a limb because I don't think I'm out on a limb when I say it. I think it's going to be an appalling earnings season. You you pulled some stats, I think, this yeah, morning. Yeah, th-
1: these are probably worth sharing. So. In anticipation of earnings season, a lot of companies, 130 to be exact, have come out and given some pre-announcement warnings, really, is what it is. Uh, Out of those which have either been strong negative or strong positive, there's nearly 2.2 times as many strong negatives as there are strong positives. So the outlook is not looking good whatsoever.
0: And and it can't be unexpected. Um, Yeah, And that's a brilliant statistic to look at because... When companies come out prior to earnings and say, listen, um, there's trouble brewing. We talked about central banks just previously about how important it is to be able to communicate with markets. As a CEO of a a listed company, you know, your obligation amongst many things is obviously to your stakeholders and also to, to, you know, to provide full disclosure and having the ability to keep markets across uh, where your expectations or, or managing market expectations? is key, I always remember this would be probably before your time, but Steve Belmer, when he was CEO of Microsoft, was fantastic at managing. Oh, it's you know it's, it's tough out there. They come up with a good number, but he'd always do his bit to dampen the flames um, around Microsoft's earnings. And you know it, it's been very well telegraphed early that things aren't going to be great. And so it can't come as an unexpected surprise to markets when companies come up with an earnings downgrade or really soggy guidance as to what the next six months look like. Which we
1: saw in Nike and Coles just a week or two ago as well. Yeah, which uh, it, that stock's down a lot too.
0: Like Nike, again, you know, I mean, there's a stock that's been on a tear and, and 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 again, good, prudent corporate management by disclosing to the market that, that, that there's some short term pain when you do that. Your share price, share price no doubt will reflect that. Um, there's always short term pain, but it's like anything, you, if you're playing for the long term, that short term burn, just like when we train in the gym. We love that pain because the long-term benefit comes out of it. And in the same way as a shareholder, annoyed as you may be, that the shares have given something back. If it's done in a way where there's good disclosure, that does end up providing some stability in the share price over the medium and longer term, even though there's a bit of bark taken off today. Also, we talk about cautionary tales of investing over earnings, earnings dates anyway. There are strategies you use and straddles are obviously a very good example of that uh, versus just buying and holding stock. So getting back to it, you know, The earning season, I think, you know, it's going to be gnarly and I think the outlook is going to be pretty bleak and investors need to be prepared for that. And so being in the right kind of sectors to weather that storm and come out of it, unscathed or indeed profitably is, is something that people right now should be lining themselves up ready for that, that visit to the confession booth of each of these companies as they come in.
1: Well, look, let's leave that to the end because I know that's what our listeners really want to hear is the where to and the plays A yeah. B. Which
0: four stocks are you going to recommend for this? Yeah, hang yeah, around. Okay. right to the very last okay. second and for we'll tell last you. second. Yeah, click tune, here. In, tune
1: in next week. And we might. Do. yeah. Um, so what about interest rates? Do you think they'll move higher through the back end of this year?
0: Undoubtedly, yes. Uh, and again, that's not really a bold call. It's pretty obvious when you look at you know, the state of inflation. Yeah, what, 8.6% in the US. I, I think we spoke about um, PPI, which is the producer price index, which was, I think at, at the time we covered it in the podcast, about 11.3%. All-time high. Yeah. And, and there's a lag factor of a few months, which I think we talked about in that podcast, before that filters through to consumer price, so you've got the producer making stuff, and then you've got that stuff being sent to market, and then on sold uh, through retail or whatever it may be, and then the consumer paying that price, and then it getting measured. So there's about usually about a three month lag or so, and and so I'm not saying 11.3% for inflation, but the inflationary pressure, the cause of it, is still there, and you know in the case of in the case of the US, um, you know, interest rates almost certainly continue to move higher. Maybe another decent lick. It's 0.75 last time around, yep. uh, which again is unusual. It's the first time for a long time that they've they've sort of pulled out their heavy artillery like that, and maybe another move of that order uh, will go some way towards um, dampening those inflationary pressures down. But when you look at the root cause. Uh, for where a lot of this inflation is coming from. The US in particular is in a really tricky situation um, in that you've got midterms coming up, and I think the Biden administration are going to get absolutely hosed, and rightly so. Um, The economy is in a dreadful state. You don't, because it's so bad with what's going on in the economy right now. Everyone's forgotten to talk about the illegal immigration problem on the southern border, which is now running at around about 200,000 people per month illegally entering in the US and being allowed to stay. It's just a staggering figure. Yeah. Um, and, and I think the Biden administration are in for a real tough time, and and worse still is the prospect of what's coming over the hill with maybe the return of uh, of President Trump uh, for another crack at it, or the, the uh, I think the uh, the senator in Florida is also a firm favourite to be putting his hat in the ring as well, who, who who's a bit of a gun to be fair. Uh, no Kanye guy. West anymore. Uh, no Kanye West, just uh, someone that uh, you know is a Yale and Harvard graduate that's uh, <laughs> served in the military, that was a special forces advisor, is a lawyer, and. Um, and it's currently the governor, I think, or senator, governor or senator, I think he's the governor of the state of Florida. So yeah, there is competition there. But yeah, parking the midterms and everything around that aside, yeah, the Biden's Biden administration's approach to the inflationary problem in the US is publicly appealing to petrochemical companies to reduce their prices, yet oil prices are a global commodity price. Number two, refiner margins are the big issue. Um, the US hasn't built a new refinery for 30 years and there's no plans to build a new oil refinery so there's a constraint on supply and whenever there's a constraint on supply and, and strong demand you're going to get price hikes it's as simple as that it's, it's just is simple economics and so maybe yeah, you know, they might cover that at the old people's home when he shuffles off there uh, at the end of this term which is probably a better fitting place in the White House, to be quite (laughs) frank. And again, that might be controversial, but look at the anecdotal evidence of what you're seeing. Um, Please reduce your gas prices, petrol stations. The margin on petrol for a petrol station, a gas station, is five or six cents a gallon. They make all their money
1: selling the stuff inside, right? Absolutely.
0: It's $5.50 a gallon. So taking five cents off a gallon will make no difference. And it's not the cause of it. There's a bigger issue that needs to be addressed. And part of that, of course, is the environmental uh, program that's in the US. So inflation pressure is here to stay. And don't forget, higher energy prices rubs onto everything. It's transport, it's uh, heating or cooling and everything uh, manufacturing, it's in everything. So there is a rub on for the consumer. So US consumers in for a really tough time. Um, I think also um, given some of the, the geopolitical tensions, the US is likely uh, to refocus its efforts on supply chain. US companies looking at supply chains is talking Congress. This is good legislation, I might add. Um, so not everything in the administration is bad. There are some good things that come of it. And one of the things that I, I believe is being discussed there at the minute and getting approved is a reduction of foreign direct investment in China uh, if, there's a, if it competes with the US national interests from an economics point of view. And so... If you start seeing more investment back in the US to build stuff locally, um, that's good for the economy through one set of lenses, because you don't have all these supply chain shortages, but you have a higher cost of production to do that because of labor costs and things of that nature. So on the back of that, that's also, even though it's good economically, is not so good from an inflation perspective. My bet would be from an emerging markets perspective, Mexico start investing and it's got an open border, literally at the moment, uh, with the US. But from a NAFTA, from a free trade perspective, the North American free trade perspective, if Mexico, with a reasonably highly skilled and, and large population workforce, um, is able to become the US supply chain fix instead of going to China, you don't have any shipping. You've got an open border. You've got you already got existing trade arrangements in play. You're a skilled workforce. All of that sort of stuff is there. And that could go a long way towards having manufacturing supply chains fixed, but at a lower labour cost. So that is what my call would be. from a the budget log- That's good one A. B. Yeah, I mean, again, I mean, it's, it, it's not simple economics, but it kind of makes sense when you look at it like sure. that. So, yeah, higher interest rates in the US. Here for us in Australia, I think we're in for the same. Again, purely and simply, uh, because um, we... We got to the party late, and, and worse, unlike the US, have failed to really communicate with the broader market as to um, why rates have been held and, and where they're going. Um, you know, If you get something wrong, the best thing you do is say, look, we got it wrong, it's worse than we thought, and we're going to be doing this, to put it right. Because again, rather like Nike with some... Um, weaker figures, better getting that out in the open and it's dealt with than just letting it fester. And you've got this uncertainty that just continues to grow. And yeah, you've got people that are in a highly geared position that have bought into a red hot property market where they've probably borrowed arguably more than what they probably should, where their cost of borrowing is now starting to go up. And if it was just a cost of borrowing that was going up, the modeling that the bank uses to lend you, you'd go, okay, we factored in interest rates being say 2% higher. I think they'll go higher than that, but we factored that in already so you can afford your loan. What's probably not factored in is that broader surge in cost of living, because not only have you now got a higher rate to the service on your loan, but you've also got less money to do that with maintaining your current lifestyle by buying more, you know, paying more for your groceries, your fuel, your electricity, and everything else that goes alongside it. So, yeah, you know, I think, you know, a reasonably hard slowdown, and, and it's, I don't think a soft landing is the term at all, a hard landing for the Aussie economy. Um the job market, and this is the one variable in here that's a bit different, is that we don't have high unemployment either in the US or Australia. Full employment, right? To all intents and purposes, which normally, if you're drifting into a recession, you'd expect to see higher unemployment. But there are specific factors for that. Number one, you saw a lot of people that were getting close to retirement age during the pandemic actually retire and move out of the job market, move out of the workforce, and and just take early retirement. They go, well, that's me done. That's a nice way of bowing out. Uh, And equally, you've also had a lack of return to the workforce from a lot of people, which in indicate not in the US, because the benefit structure is very different. But here in Australia, where yeah, you had things like JobKeeper and, and, and quite a number uh, of economic stimulant measures that were brought in play, um, maybe to help win an election, which didn't get won, um, and buy voter support, but quite a generous support package um, to, to help people has really caused a reluctance for people to want to get back into the workforce. and you know and that may sound harsh uh, and if it does sound harsh just look at the simple statistic there are more people claiming benefit post covid in a full employment environment than were claiming benefit prior to so there's a there's a the in the advert in the uh, or the headline in the newspapers over the weekend was that you know the the queue the dull queue as it stands right now could fulfill the jobs shortfall in australia anyone that wants a job can have one and yet you've still got this rump of unemployment, not because opportunity is not available, I suspect it's moving increasingly towards a a decision, an active decision not to. And harsh as that may sound, when you've got a a structure that, uh, let's say, if you're unemployed versus working, and okay, if you're unemployed, you're scratching by on a very low income, I understand that, and it may not be that easy, in which case, get into the job market and you'll earn more, particularly given now that minimum wage has gone up. The challenge, isn't about the benefit rate and the hourly rate that people earn. It's the fact that you might say, I'm going to have to work 40 hours a week and I'm going to earn maybe 10 bucks an hour more than what I'm getting by doing nothing. You know, 400 bucks a week more through working versus not working $10 an hour. Is that an effective marginal increase for me to want to be back in the workforce? and? Australia, we need you. We need people back in the workforce. We're hiring, most companies out there are hiring. And it's a question of just getting in and getting uh, getting involved with something. And it's not just about the money, it's the positive momentum and the contribution to the society that you bring is a huge, huge thing. So yeah, I think yeah, we can have a, a continued low unemployment Drifting into a recession with a very, very high cost of living, which is a really gnarly situation and very, very difficult from an investor's perspective to traverse. There you go. Monologue over.
1: All right. Well, let's 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 go through that and finish off for today, A B. So mm. considering that in that dog leg forecast, we had unfortunately the not so good scenario come true, and I think where we're at is is pretty mm. clear and we've spoken of many times. In markets,
0: where are you looking right now? Short, long hold? I think overall, uh, I've got a reasonably neutral to bearish outlook on the equity markets over the next few months. And, and, and again, I hate to be the prophet of doom, but the, the evidence I'm seeing based on the numerous cycles I've been around markets, you know, you'd know, you be a fool not to, to to recognize the patterns that are there. We're going to be in a market which is neutral to slightly bearish I think we're, yeah, we might see a low of, say, 3,400 uh, in the SP uh, and 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 maybe a grind higher, a very painful grind higher towards the back end of the year. And for, for investors that are listening to this, you think, oh, well, we may as well cash out. There are opportunities within that, which I guess is the question you're asking. Um, I'd think I would be long volatility. I suspect we're going to continue to see that that spike high in volatility on particular news-driven events. And in fact, we have a a strategy that's dedicated toward trading that very specifically. So you remove uh, stock-specific risk. You're just saying, look, when volatility is low, I'm going to buy it. And there's going to be some form of bad news somehow, somewhere over the next month that's probably going to cause volatility to spike. And that's where I'm going to take my profit. It's not overly sophisticated, but it's actually quite a clever trap for, for trading these markets. And whether that's an earnings, like a major, major earnings downgrade or a swag of them, whether it's you know, a firm hand from a central bank that continues to raise rates on a on a, on a high level, whether it's a really um, sticky inflation number that's, again, higher and continuing to show that inflation is not transitory, it's actually you know, rampant. Any one of those scenarios are the sorts of things that will spike volatility. Uh, another shock to geopolitics um, and, and any of the other Crazy things that we've seen over the last few years, you know, another tanker getting jammed in the Suez Canal. It's beyond belief could, when you we think could see a,
1: all of those realistically, yeah. any, especially the first three.
0: Yeah, any and all of those. So that gives you a spike in vol and you pick up your yeah, 25-30% yeah, return. Go to that a couple of times a year and you're making some Happy good days. money. Yep. Um, so so that's that's a niche strategy. It's it's it is a more sophisticated strategy. It's not your mum and dad buy and hold uh, type approach. Um, outside of that, I think given interest rates to continue to move higher. I think a short bonds, long bond yields play. TBT is something we've we talked love TBT. about. We um, You know, and on these pullbacks that we see between FOMC meetings represents yet another buying opportunity to get set and enjoy the ride up higher again. Uh, and that's been almost, um, you know, with tedious regularity that we've we've seen that trade play out over the last six months. Energy wise, as always, the risk is to the upside with energy. and And, and we've got you know, 250 million people still in lockdown in China uh, with COVID or COVID-related controls for their zero COVID policy. And as they're unlocked and allowed back out into normal functioning society, as much as you can describe it as that, um, there's a, a pent up demand for about a million and a half barrels of oil a day. That hasn't been being consumed for the last four months, and you can only see that that puts further upside pressure on oil prices. So I think very selectively looking at buying opportunities into the energy play uh, would probably be would probably be three uh, three areas I'd be looking at for you know reasonably high probability trades.
1: What about some defensive plays, in say utilities or healthcare, for example? AB.
0: Great point, uh, and I think you know there are times in the cycle we talked about you know buying tech, um, which is not the time to do that irrespective of valuation. Um, you know, any spikes in that is a, an opportunity to sell that position yeah. down, I think. Um, and I don't see that changing for, you know, between now and the back end of the year, to be perfectly honest. Um, from a defensive perspective, you know, boring businesses that push out widgets uh, or distribute widgets that are essential are a really good play. So, you know, defensive businesses, Yeah, you know, we talked about retail, you know, possibly having quite a difficult time, which it will. It's a discretionary spend. If you're tight for money, um, you're maybe not gonna buy sneakers this weekend or a new TV. Um, but those staple businesses, alcohol and tobacco is a classic example Absolutely. of Absolutely. Economy curbs up row, people drink and smoke. Economy's booming, people drink and smoke. So it's a really good de- defensive area. Endeavor, we've got a trade running on at the moment. Yes, it's looking um, pretty good which too. Is, um, which is a, a, a good exposure to that sort of business. So you know, there's one example. Utilities, you're quite right. If you are a distributor of power, um, People need electricity or or gas. And if you distribute that, it's almost uh, an inelastic demand. You get paid the clip on how many megawatts you transport or how many gigaliters of gas that you push through, whatever the metric may be, you get paid your clip on that. And and so they're quite defensive businesses, rain, hell, or shine, um, that typically do very well. They're usually quite cash generative. They usually pay quite a high dividend. And I wouldn't advocate buying them for their dividend, I'd buy them for the stability. That they offer in terms of their share price right now. Um, Telcos, again, are another example of what are normally defensive type plays. Healthcare, late cycle play. And again, we've got some great positions running Merck, Pfizer. Yep. These have all done very, very well. And again, they're they're both defensive and they're also exposed at the right time of the the cycle. You know, if you're sick, you're not going to go, oh, you know, inflation's a bit high. I'm not going to buy my essential medication today. It's a decision you have to do anyway. So, in that respect, they can be quite quite defensive businesses. And I think having a portfolio that's orientated around that, if we were to use, say a cricket analogy, yeah there's a time when you're playing cricket where you want to hit the ball out of the ground and there's a time that you just want to get the scoreboard ticking over, just keep rotating, strike single here, single there, and that's what you're looking to do. And I think given the more challenging conditions in markets for, for most retail investors, yeah, Let's face it, this is only the third time in is it 10 or 15 years we've had a negative year out of the ASX, a negative financial year. This is not a time to be trying to buy the five bagger that's going to hit the ball out of the ground. This is a time to stay safe and just keep the scoreboard ticking over. And if you can hold stocks that hold their value in a falling market, if you can hold stocks that maybe grind a little bit higher under those conditions, or in the case of the volatility or TBT type trade are able to give you some good solid green ink based on a very rational argument. That's the kind of defensive tilt on a portfolio I think would best serve people uh, in the current conditions. And and look, we could be wrong on that, uh, and it wouldn't be the first time, it wouldn't be the last time we were wrong. It just seems to make an awful lot of sense Uh, and buying something that's oversold because it's cheap right now it's cheap for a reason and that's the fact that the 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 clock is turning we're moved into a new phase of economic activity Uh, and for many people it's the first time they've really seen a recession and the way that things behave under those conditions are quite different and under those conditions if the conditions are different Oh, sorry, can't have conditions on conditions. If the, if the economy, the way the economy is behaving has changed, you've got to have a shift in your investment strategy, assuming you want it to win under those those kinds of uh, circumstance.
1: Great little rundown there, a, B, I tell you what. At the end of this year, we're going to have to do an analysis on this analysis every six months. I think let's sit down and do it, this.
0: I think it's great to do. And, uh, and I mean, there's just so many opportunities out there. We've just skimmed the surface with this. And by learning how to invest properly and how to have a flexible, fluid and professional trading strategy under all market conditions there's no reason why you can not be banking good profits over the next six months. Unfortunately, as you'll see from the performance of your managed fund or industry super over the last 12 months, it's been a dog of a year because typically they're buy and hold approaches. And I don't think you can blindly buy and hold in these current conditions. You've got to be more nimble. And that does present an advantage, a competitive advantage to retail investors that are savvy enough to where to, where to put the pieces on the chessboard. And if you do that the right way, you'll make a killing. Perfect way to put a ribbon around AB. Thank you very much. My pleasure, anytime, Mitch. There you have it, guys. Make sure you give us a review and a rating so more people can find this show, and we'll look forward to hosting you next week.